Friends, what would you do today if I was to inform you that you are actually royalty? Well, imagine, you know, Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth Windsor rocks up at the front doorstep of your house this morning and she comes along and she says, hey, uh, great news, we're actually long lost brothers and sisters and you're actually part of the royal family. Now, some of you might be like, that seems like a nightmare. I've seen the royal family lately, not really something I want to be a part of. But, but just move, imagine that you found out today that you were actually royalty. What would it change? How would it shift your perspective? Well, I say this simply because this happened to a guy who was a reverend, an African-American pastor and preacher in New Jersey, lived by himself in an apartment. He didn't even have a car because he didn't have enough money for a car. But one day he thought, you know what? I don't really know my family story or my history. I'm going to find out who I am. So he went on to Ancestry.com, did a blood test, sent the blood test away, and his DNA results came back. And I don't know that this is how it happens. I've never done Ancestry.com, which I should, because who knows? I could be royalty. You don't know. But what happened the next moment is flashing on the screen of his results with these two words. You have royal DNA. And he's like, surely not. This African-American preacher pastor is suddenly a royal person. He's like, no, nah, I'll, I'll try this again. I, I don't think that that's true. So he sent away his DNA to somewhere else. And it came back again, actually, you are of royal descent. But not only was this guy named Jay Spreet royal descent, he was actually related to a royal family that was still alive. And did some more research and some more finding out that there was this small African country known as Benin where he is actually a distant cousin of the reigning king. He got in touch with the authorities in Benin who thought he was joking. He sent them through all the documents and details that he was able to find out. They realized that actually by their law, he wasn't just related, but technically he had to be claimed and crowned as a prince. So this African preacher named, named Prince Dr. Reverend J. Spreet went from being alone by himself in New Jersey to jumping on a plane. And he talks about this. You can research it online. He's like, it happened in a couple of weeks. I'm on a plane to Africa and I hop off in Africa and I just feel like it's going to be like a weird family gathering of like this tribe who, you know, back in ancient years used to be royalty. He comes off the plane and the whole nation of Benin is there to welcome him home. And as he hops off, the royal family is there with fanfare and Ben is like, welcome home, Prince Benin. He's like, I'm just a preacher. I say that all today, friends, because you don't know I could be a king. No, not really. Why do I say that? Because how did it change his identity from one day, all he thought he was, was a reverend, a preacher, living by himself with not even a car to his name, to now, apparently the family was so shocked he didn't know who he was, they sent him to prince school so that he could learn what it meant to be a prince. In days, in moments, his identity shifted and completely changed who he would. How do you think he now acts? I think probably confused. I think he's probably not quite sure how to act, but I can guarantee you this, knowing who he was really would have shifted not only how he saw himself, but how he chose to live in the world. So let me begin by asking this question. Do you know who you are? Do you know whose you are? There is a problem in our world today where I believe we're walking through an identity crisis where our world is carrying a message which says, let us tell you who you are. You are whoever you want to be. You're the summation of your own experiences and, and however you want to devise your identity, that's who you are. And that identity crisis in the world, which is, which is pushed out there by secular messaging, that we can all just create these images of ourselves as however we want to see ourselves actually bleeding down into the church. 
Well, I believe that there are many people today who call themselves followers of Christ that are living in identity crisis. You're living in a confused reality where so much of the issue of who you are and what you do is confused because you don't know the identity that was won for you. And if we do, we've forgotten it. Today in the book of 1 John, we step into John chapter 3. And John chapter 3, just John 1 John chapter 3 talks about three things. That you have a received identity. That so many of us have forgotten our identity. And then finally, that there's a way where you can prove your identity. And you don't have to send your DNA results to Ancestry.com for that to happen. Friends, my hope for today is this. If you're an A-type leader and you need to know where I'm landing, I pray that when you walk out of here today, that you would know that there is a word that is spoken over your life that is not about your opinion, but about divine reality. That there is an invitation for how you can exist and walk and operate in this world that is an invitation to operate as a royal member of a royal family. Do you know who you are today? Do you know who you are? So we're going to start off, we're going to talk about received identity. Everyone say the word received. If you're taking notes, I'd love you to write that down as the first note, because I think one of the biggest things that we forget as Christians is we have received an identity. Now, you may be here today and you do not yet know Christ. Maybe you're invited and, and, and you're new to faith and you're wondering, wow, I have to listen to this guy for the next 20 minutes. No, it's worse than that. It's going to be about the next 30 minutes. And I want some of you are like, don't say that. We, my friends are here. There's a thing that I want to help you understand is that so much of the world is telling you who you are and it's confusing you. If you are yet to know Jesus, then there is a gift that is available to you today. That actually there is a greater identity you can have in Jesus Christ than anything the world can offer you. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we know this truth or we should know this truth. Because in 1 John chapter 3, we hear the news, the royal decree, the DNA results have come back, friends. You are of royal blood. We read this in 1 John chapter 3 verse 1, where the writer of John kind of, he exclaims this right in the middle of the book that he's writing. He says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. See what great love the Do you know how loved you are today? When was the last time you stopped and paused and said, I am loved? What does it mean for love to be lavished on you? If I had a bowl of chips today and I said to you, I want you to lavish this with ketchup or tomato sauce, what would that mean? Would it mean you would just be really sparing as you poured the ketchup on? Would it mean you'd give me a light dusting of ketchup? No, no, no. If you did either of those things, then you would not have understood the fullness of the word lavished. Lavished is such a great word. No one who asks for something to be lavished is wanting something done sparingly. They want you to drown the chips in ketchup, right? Who likes ketchup with chips with drowned ketchup? Three of us. Fantastic. This is how the writer of the book of John describes the love of God. The love of God has been lavished on you. Lavished on you. How do you know that? Because you have been called children of God. And that is what we are. That line alone, friends, should cause us to pause and would be enough for us to just go into the final song and celebrate. But for some reason, when I tell you that you are a child of God, it lands with a dull thud. So what? But this revelation is central to the New Testament message. It's not peripheral. A great leader and thinker of theology, J.I. Packer, who's passed away now, says this, if you were to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. 
Friends, to say that we are children of God is not just something nice that we wrap ourselves in just to make us feel warm on cold, dark and lonely days. It is a new reality that Christ has welcomed us into by his finished death and resurrection on the cross of on the cross of Calvary and in the empty tomb that you now have an identity one for you. Do you know what that identity is? So the problem with this is is that I actually think most of us spend more of our time building an identity that isn't gospel centric at all. Who are you, friends? If I was to ask you right now today, who are you? How would you describe yourself? What would you say? Very rarely would any of us turn around and be like, you want to know who I am? I am a child of the living God. Now, if that's you, I would offer that most people would find that response really weird and bizarre. Because when someone says, who are you? How do we, we choose a point of reference for our world, right? Who are you? Well, I'm a teacher. Oh, I'm, a, I'm the husband of Sarah. I've got two kids, actually, Archer and Ben. Or maybe you don't have kids. Or, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of an entrepreneur. Who are you? It's an interesting question, isn't it? And it's a question that we're finding in this cultural moment, people are scrambling to answer. Timothy Keller, a great leader and thinker, would say it like this. We work out who we are by wherever we find our sense of self and wherever our sense of value comes from. Do you want to know where your identity is built upon? Where do you find your sense of self? How do you define yourself? Where is your value coming from? When we start with what we do, then we are defined by what we do. When we start with our relationships, then we are defined by who loves us or doesn't love us in a moment. The problem with this form of building an identity is how shaky that identity formation actually is. We live in a world that says you are your sexuality, you are your money, you are your income, you are your job, you are your family. The problem with defining identity with these senses of self and values is this. All I have to do to destroy your understanding of who you are is to disrupt these temporary circumstances in your world. Someone walks away from a relationship and suddenly they go through an identity crisis. Why? Because the very thing that they were identified as is now gone. You want to disrupt someone's identity? Where their identity is built on comfortability, where their identity is built on income, where their identity is built on relationships that are functional and community, then just experience a global pandemic. And how disruptive has the last two years been? As the whole world has, has overturned its head and been like, man, we, we don't know where's what. But here's the truth. There is something that hasn't changed for those who are in Christ Jesus. But for so many of us, me included, it was actually a reveal around where really my sense of self and identity came from. See, friends, when we have our identity in money, in our work, in relationships or families or our status, we are putting and building our identity on weak and shaky ground. And our identity is in crisis because who we are is only as strong as what we do or who is around us. And what the Bible is trying to tell us is that there is a divine reality that cannot be shaken. There is a divine reality that is given for you, that is not achieved by you, but can be received by you. That there is a divine reality that you get welcomed in, that no matter what happens in your world, who comes, who goes, what's going on, what, how confused you may be about different sexual decisions, there is a decision that can actually be the fruit from all of your life shall come from. And it's this reality that you are called children of God, how much the Father loves you. Do you know that today? And maybe the other reason why it lands dull on us is you're like, well, Michael, we're all children of God. Actually, we're not. There is nowhere in the Bible that says every single human being in the world is a child of God. 
And, and I think part of the reason why, we, why we've lost the meaning of this is because we've extended it further than it should be extended. This is not because Christianity is some club of who's in and who's out. But, it's a, but it is a faith of who has received and who has rejected. In, one, in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, John's very clear. He says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. What's he saying here? He's saying there's no DNA test that can prove that you are a child of God. Just being a human alone doesn't make us a child of God. Why? Because all humanity has done something really important. We've rejected God as our king. We've rejected God as our father. And God does not want to force people to be something that they have chosen to walk away from. But here's the thing, friends. We are not all children of God, but we are all invited to become children of God. That's a very clear thing. Maybe you'll hear something and you're like, wow, Michael, you're really making this bad news for me. No, friends, this is good news for us all. God does not force a status on you that you do not want. God does not force you to be a part of a family that you would prefer to be disassociated with. But he does say this, but the invitation's open. And it's for you. And the beauty of this is, if your identity is built on relationships, how do you know that you're worth anything? Well, you have to earn a relationship. If your identity is built on a job, how do you know you're worth, worth anything? Well, you better have a job. And it better be the one that everyone thinks you should have. If your identity is built on money, how do you know you're worth anything? Well, I hope your crypto account has been sold and you're investing in something else. Otherwise, you're in a really bad place right now. So be like, yeah. If your identity is built on anything like that, you have to earn it to be able to be able to strong in your identity. But here's what Christ does. He says, the identity I give you is not earned. It is received. It is not achieved. It is received. And this is the good news of the gospel, friends. You become royalty, not because someone gave birth to you, but because you've chosen to be born again in a new creation in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because you've chosen to accept it. And when did you get to accept that Jesus Christ was your Lord and Savior? Here's the beauty of the Christian faith. You don't become a Christian when you've got your life in order. You don't become a follower of Christ when everything around you looks gleaming and perfect. This is when Christ intersected my life. You know the story, I preach on it often. When I was in the back of this room, broken and ashamed, living in darkness, Christ stepped in by the power of His Holy Spirit. He said, Michael, I'm calling you home. Come be my son again. In my worst moment. This is why that's beautiful. If Jesus invites me to be a son of the living God in my worst moment, then here's what I know. I don't stay a part of the family because of my performance, but because of his. So when I struggle and I fall and I stumble, here's what I know. I don't need to focus on what I do. I need to focus on who I am. Some of us today, you think that your behavior keeps you in the family of God. No, 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 friends. It's your confession that keeps you in the family. That actually reminds you, I am a son and a daughter of God. Because it doesn't matter how well you perform in church. It doesn't matter how badly you perform in church. You are not a Christian or a follower or a son or daughter of God because you rocked up this morning, but because the finished work of Jesus Christ has been accepted and received in your heart and over your life. That's what it means. Friends, I believe today that there is an identity crisis in the church, but it doesn't have to be that way. Because so many of us are timid. So many of us are concerned. We, 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 come, we come into church as, as if we're dragging our feet. And it's because we've forgotten the family we're a part of. If I was to invite you to the Oval Office today, hey, we're going to go to the Oval Office to see the President of the United States. How would you feel? Some of you would be like, terrible. I hate the President of the United States. I'm like, well, all right, well, you know, Choose one that you liked. And you're like, I hate them all. Okay, come with me on the analogy. Pretend you like the President of the United States. Let's say you're at the Oval Office. How would you feel? You would, it would be weird if you did not feel a sense of awe and intimidation. 
To walk into the Oval Office is to walk into a seat of power in our world. But can I tell you who probably doesn't feel a sense of awe and intimidation? Well, I know because I've seen pictures, usually the children of the president. Have you ever seen pictures of JFK's kids playing around the office? They're not sitting there going, hmm, dad could nuke someone from this desk. They're saying this desk is a great place to play hide and seek. Why? Because before he was the president, he was their father. Now, this analogy breaks down if we try and you know, separate God's characters and roles too much. But this is why I say this. Imagine if you were adopted into the president of the United States. Initially, you'd be intimidated and in awe, but eventually you wouldn't know that as the office of the president. You'd come to know it as the office, office of your father. And there would be a boldness that you would walk in, a sense of awe and fear definitely, but there's a sense of intimacy as well. Why do I say this? Friends, too many of us are treating God as if we are subjects of a king rather than sons and daughters of a father in heaven who calls you home. Should God be held in awe and esteem? Yes. But there is also not a sense of fear of retribution when we come before God and the divine blood of Jesus Christ covers us. We walk boldly into the throne room of Christ Jesus and go, I want to worship God today because no matter how much I stuffed up this week, I'm still a son and daughter of God. And yet we drag our feet in prayer in the mornings. We struggle to talk with the God who creates universe and stars and canyons for a living. And he says, if only you knew how I saw you you would run to me, not from me. Do you know who you are today? Do you know who you are? You have received an identity that has been achieved for you, but not by you. But here's the problem. How often, friends, do we fall into the trap? I'm going to move past the next verse. I encourage you to go read it just for the sake of time. They're beautiful. They continue to expand on this truth that not only is an identity received, friends, but sometimes our identity is forgotten. As John unpacks what it means to be identified in Christ, he says this has been one for us in Christ Jesus. The world doesn't know who you are because it doesn't know the one that you're related to. But in fact, you're now made pure. But in the moment, in verse 4, he changes the narrative. It's like he just forgets what he's talking about. And in 1 John 4, he actually goes, there's a way that you forget your identity. And he launches into this moment, which we feel is like repetition for us. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, it seems like John really likes talking about sin. Feels like he talks about it a little bit too much. In fact, last time I preached, half my sermon was on sin because that's what John was talking about. And this is what we're doing when we're reading through the Bible. We're not trying to pick and choose, but just sit in the text as it is. So why is John saying, hey, you're a child of God, but let me tell you about sin. Sin is lawlessness. Why does he repeat this? Well, for those of you who are parents in the room, why do you repeat stuff to your children? Is it because they remember? Is it because they're obeying? No, you repeat instructions or pieces of information that you know has gone in one ear and out the next. In fact, you ask them to repeat it back to you. Hey, what did I say? And then if they get it wrong, you're like, nah, this is what John's doing right now. As a pastor, he's going, hey, I know you thought we dealt with sin, but I I need to bring it back here because sin actually has a part to play in your identity. You ought to know this. Sin is lawlessness. Now, when we think about lawlessness, what do we think? Well, unfortunately, we can sometimes think when John talks about the law, we think about sin is really just us doing all the right things and going, okay, God, you tell me all of this they need to do, and I will do, do. No, what he's trying to do here is actually talk about the one thing that is going to threaten your identity. The one thing that's going to lead you to walk in confusion, the one thing that's going to lead you to walk in crisis and away from the identity Christ one for you on the cross. Do you know what that thing is? The thing is you. That we all have gospel amnesia, friends. When we don't repeat the gospel to ourselves or remind ourselves, then we fall into the path of sin being lawlessness. Why does the Bible talk about sin as lawlessness? Michael, I thought you said sin was selfishness. No, it is. 
But why is sin selfishness? Because it is us choosing to step outside of the way that Christ has called things and created things to be to serve our own ends. To understand sin is lawlessness, a guy named Joshua Lynn uses the analogy of a cliff. And he says this. Think about it this way. If you were to walk off a cliff and you started saying, I don't have to live by the law of gravity. I can live by my own rules. You would, on the one hand, be disobeying a very specific rule that wasn't about opinion, but about reality. If you walked off that cliff, it doesn't matter how much you didn't believe in the law of gravity, gravity would suck you down to the earth and remind you it is very, very real. There are consequences when you choose to not live aware of the law of gravity. You'd never say this. Why? Because gravity is something that we must live in reference to. Of course, there are guidelines to honor and boundaries to acknowledge. You know the results of walking off a cliff and trying to break the law of gravity, death, and it's death and disintegration. This is what he says. We don't live as if God is the creator of all things. That he designed this world to operate in a way. When we break God's loving law, which is not about keeping legislation, but about going, God, how did you design us to be? When we fail to honor who he is, when we say or imply by our actions that he's of no consequence or important in this part of our lives, we fail to fully be people God created us to be and it leads to death and disintegration. The law of God is not a legislation that we voted on and like, yeah, that seems like a good idea. The law of God is the very natural way that God created the world to be and for us to flourish in it. And when we operate outside of that, this is the sin that is breaking apart the creation. And too many of us treat God as if he's an opinion to be obeyed. And we wonder why we come smack up against lives of confusion and chaos and disintegration and bad consequences. And God's like, because there is a way this is meant to happen. I created this. Would you listen to me? Because God, listen, friends, this is so important. Whether you're online or in the room, God is not trying to kill your joy. He's trying to protect it. That's why. He's got a way that things function because he knows the way to life and life to the full. It is not out of maliciousness that God calls us to live a certain way, but it's out of trust. It's out of design. It's out of God's created beauty. This is why we talk about sin because sin isn't just an action that we muck around with. It's a state of being that says, I choose to not believe in gravity. And the heavens and all the spiritual realm goes, what? And we wonder why the world ends up the way it is. Greed, friends, is simply the desire for us to pursue money at the expense of all else and wondering why it never fulfills us because God never created money to fill your heart. Lust is when we allow our eye to teach us what our desires should be that we think we know what would satiate the longing for intimacy and belonging when God says there's something greater than the fulfillment of lust. Gluttony is the selfish belief that one more mouthful or, or satiated craving will make us feel better about who we are or that decision that we made today. And God's saying, no, there's a better way of self-restraint, self-control that I've created you for and come and trust in me. See, when we sin, we actually choose to not trust and believe that God is who He is and He loves us as His children. Instead, we want to walk our own way. And this is so crucial for us. John goes on and says, but here's the good news. See, you know. See, you know. Here's the good news. In fact, it's back on the slide before. I'll read it to you. Here's the good news. He appeared so that He might take away our sins and in Him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. 
In fact, if you read on the screen here in verse 9, John goes on and says something really confusing. He says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is confusing. Because I thought, hang on, I thought Christians did sin. But now John is saying that Christians don't sin? That's, that's weird. So what I'd love to do, quick test. Hands up in the room if you've ever met a Christian that doesn't sin. Tense moment. First service, also no hands. Tell us online if you've met them or if that's you yourself. You're a rare breed. In fact, you are the only one in the whole world. See, there's a dangerous theology that comes out of this verse which starts to say, actually, it's possible for Christians to not sin. You can be perfect. I've met some Christians who actually hold to this belief. And they're like, no, 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 I don't sin anymore because that's what it means to be a son of God or a daughter of God. And all I have to do is spend like 15 minutes with them. And you're like, I could probably offer some suggestions of where there's some stuff going wrong here, you know? It's like I'd love to talk to the people who live with you and see you know, how they're feeling about the sin nature in your life and where that's going on. And every time, big call, every time that I've met someone that says, I can live without sin, they put a pressure on themselves and those around them to live in a way that God hasn't called them to live, where their pressure and the behavior expectation is on them, not on Jesus. See, what, what John's actually saying, and most commentators would say, it's a really clumsy way of translating in the Hebrew. He's talking about a way that we choose to habitually live. That if we're choosing to habitually live in sin, what it means is we've actually divorced ourselves away from the identity that Christ won for us on the cross. See, for me to go live in selfishness over here, it's actually for me to go, I'm not going to think about the fact that I'm a son or a daughter of God. I'm not going to think about my identity because I don't want to trust that that identity is all I need for fulfillment and to, to trust in God. I'm actually going to step over here and pursue my own ends. The reason why sin leads to a forgetting of identity is it actually teaches you that you don't need God anymore to tell you how to live your life or what's good or what's right. And you go to live by yourself, which is the original sin in Genesis chapter 3. It's an identity crisis where we don't see ourselves rightly because we don't see God rightly. And friends, what John's trying to highlight here is that you'll know people who are children of God because they're not trying to live in habitual sin. What do I mean by habitual sin? It means that where there is sin is their life. They're going, hey, I want to deal with this because this is making me forget who I am because this is what I've worked out of sin in my own life. I sin or I make a mistake and then I feel bad about myself and then I don't like who I am. So what do I do to make myself feel better? Very rarely. I mean, more and more, the, you know, the longer I've been a Christian. But initially, very rarely, would I run straight back to God? I would run to my source of identity. I run to money. I run to sex. I run to, no, I mean, you know, proverbially, I run to Netflix. I just realized I'm like, elders are in the room. They're like, we're going to have a chat there, Michael. Let's have a longer conversation about what's going on. Woo. Um, I run to, you're under status, you're under job, right? Because what we do, we go, I don't like who I am. So let me go feel better about myself by chasing that, which will only end up destroying me. We forget who we are and we start to think that who we are is earned that we make our way back there on our own rather than going, hey, I need to remember who I am. So I'm coming back to the Father on my own. I'm coming back and running there. This is why sin makes us forget who we are, friends. And the biggest way that you can change what's going on in your life is not by trying harder, but by remembering with clarity what has been spoken over you. What great love is there for you than this, that God lavishes it upon you by calling you children of God. We should stop and go, oh my goodness, God, thank you that this week you saw what I watched on the internet. You saw what I thought in my heart. You saw what I spoke with my mouth, but you still call me son and daughter. 
What great love. What great love. Because what Paul seems to insinuate here in verse 8 is that the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Ultimately, this is what it means to sin. We are sabotaging the very kingdom that Christ came to establish. That's what he's saying. He's like, hey, when when we're mucking around, we're not in line with God. We're in line with the devil. And so when we realize that that's how we spend some of our time, then we should be so shocked that God calls us back and doesn't go, hey, well, let me tell you what a bad person you are. He says, no, let me remind you of who I've called you to be. See, identity is so important to the Christian. I think it's important to our parenting. I've realized this with Archer. My boy is two and a half years old. And if you're a parent, I think you'll understand this. Unless you know, you're a different parent than I am. Maybe you're more holy. But as my son gets older, I start to realize that I didn't have, I've not had to teach him how to sin. Amen. Any other parents shocked at that? It's like you don't have to teach your son how to not listen to you. It's like natural. I've got to teach him how, how, how you're going to stay away from those things. And, and I realized, I, I get frustrated easily. So I realized what I used to do is I used to name his behavior. Hey, stop that, Archer. Stop pushing people. Stop hitting people. And, and he would just kind of get you know, angry that I was always angry at him all the time. But you know, Sarah and I have trying this new tactic, and it's so weird. Well, we start to remind him not of what he's done, but who he is. So when I pick him up from daycare and I find out that he pushed a kid over, I'm like, hey, Archer, that's not who you are. That's not who, what it means to be part of my family. What do we say? We say three things before I drop him over daycare. I get him to repeat them. I say, Archer, you say this after me. I'm gentle. He says, I'm gentle. I'm kind. I'm kind. Hey, to love is to be strong. To love is to be strong. So I say, hey, was that gentle? No, it wasn't gentle. Is that what we're going to do from here on in? No, why? Hey, because that's not who you are. See, this is what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't come in and bring condemnation, friends, unless you're outside of Jesus Christ. Condemnation is what sin does. Condemnation says this, you are nothing more than your last failure. You are nothing more than your worst mistake. This is what Jesus does. He didn't come to bring condemnation, but conviction. And conviction says this, this is not who you are. This is not who you are. Come home. This is so beautifully understood in a movie called Blood Diamond. And I'd show it to you, but there's you know, issues with streaming online and copyright. So I'm going to tell you the story. It's going to be way worse. Go home and look it up on YouTube. In Blood Diamond, one of the last scenes in the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio and his friend, D, I think his name is Day, this African man, are following, uh, trying to find this diamond in the middle of the slave mines in Africa. But Day's son has been captured and made into a child soldier in the slave mines. So he's actually trying to find his nine-year-old boy. And we find out through the story, this nine-year-old boy has killed people, has hurt people. It's, it's a brutal reality of our world that children are forced to do this. And this last moment, Leonardo DiCaprio and Day, they're, they're, they're digging for this diamond. They pick up the diamond. And as he stands up, he looks up and his son is standing before them, this nine-year-old boy. But he's not coming to his dad. He's holding a gun towards his father. This child has been taught that he is a bad person that does bad things. And in that moment, it breaks down when you go too far theologically, but there's a moment of beauty there where I think it has gospel truth in it where this African man looks at his son and says, what are you doing? This is not who you are. You are not a bad boy, but you've been taught to do bad things. Your mother waits for you. Your dog sits by the fire longing for you. Your brother and sister miss playing with you. You are not a bad boy, but you have done bad things. You are my son. It is time to come home. And with tears in his eyes, he lowers the gun and falls into his father's arms. Friends, this is a poor example of what Jesus does on the cross. Except it's not that we aren't bad people. We are bad people. We've done bad stuff. And God comes along and he says, but I have an option for you. Come home. Come be my son and daughter again. I know what you've done. But I've been waiting for you. 
And it changes everything when we know the identity that was won for us on the cross of Christ. Do you know who you are? Because right now, here today, that is on offer for you. You might be here and you're yet to be a Christian, but you know what it's like to build your identity on shaky ground, on sand. What it's like to build your identity on things that fall apart, on sexuality, on finances, on relationships or status. And here's the thing. God doesn't want you to change any of that before you come to him because it is him and only him that can bring transformation to the human heart. But he says, before you fixed any of it, here's what I want. Come home and know you are my son and my daughter. Have you accepted the invitation of Christ today? Do you know him as father? And if you don't, then there's going to be a moment at the end of this service where I'm going to create an opportunity for you to come home. But before I do that, I want to talk to those of you who call yourselves followers of Christ, who are followers of Christ. Amen? Because John says, there's actually a way to know if someone's a child of God. This is how we know the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. It's a really hard line here where Paul is saying you don't need to send your DNA into Ancestry.com to work out if you're of royal blood. It's actually a really simple way. Hey, do you long to live the way God's called you to live? Yeah, you may stumble and fall, but do you long to live the way God's called you to live? And do you love one another? Man, what would the world be like if Christians just aimed and prayed to do these two things well? See, the last thing that we've got to know today is that there is an identity that is proven by the way we live. I'm worried about our church at times. Because I see a service that's mainly full online, which is doing really well. But when we were preparing for this service, uh, for this series, one of the things that became clear to me is, is just the Holy Spirit started speaking to me and the team and, and just started just highlighting that there's just some things that we've been acting that are not the ways of the children of God. That there are actually things that we, we, we take place in, and we have allowed into our community that are not love. And there are people here today who are like, do I want to come home? And you know how they're knowing if they want to come home and be a part of our table and share in our meal? They're looking at us. And I think that some of that should cause us concern question I would ask is, it says in this, this last moment, the last verses in, um, in, in 1 John, and just for the sake of time, I encourage you to go read it. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, remember who you are, dear children. Let's not love with word or speech, but with actions and in truth. What's John saying here? Don't tell me that you love one another. Show me. You know, there's these moments where I've had the good privilege to go um, to someone else's house for a meal. And you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a person's house like this, but there are these families you go to growing up or like these houses you get to sit in and, and it's like, it's just a good meal. And like you're kind of hanging out there, mom and dad are chilling and the kids all seem to be getting along. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of those moments. Maybe it's not a family, maybe it's a community. And you're all sharing a meal together. There's just this vibe there where you're like, man, I just don't want to leave. Can I leave my family and come and join your family? This would be great. My mom was in the first service. She thought I was literally saying I wanted to leave my family. And we had time of prayer ministry after the service together. It was great. 
That joke never gets old. Thank you so much for laughing. But what you realize is that like the way a family does hospitality initiates a, a love that people are like, I long to be a part of this. And what John's trying to say here is, is actually that's how people should experience this community. They should rock up and be like, I don't want to go home. I want to hang out. Now, I actually think we're pretty good at this at New Life. The first time someone comes, we're like, yeah, free coffee, new person. But then the second or third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, hey, you look familiar. Do you go here? You've been here three months. Oh, awesome. Fantastic. You know, and we just kind of like, people just kind of drift through. I just got to say, I want to ask this. Would people know us by our love? Michael, what does love look like? This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for another. Friends, the question I would ask is, when was the last time you laid down your life for someone? Because there are things that I've heard in our community that are not love. I just want to call them out. I heard a story about how someone came in and sat down in a seat and someone came along and said, that's my seat, you need to move. This is not love, friends. Can you imagine? Imagine someone brings their 18-year-old son or daughter along for the first time to this church. They hate church. They hate God. They're not even sure Christians are good. They sit in a seat and they're sitting there and someone comes along and goes, I'm sorry, dearie. That's where I sit every week. You're going to need to move. What are they going to think? They're not going to be like, coming back next week. Hopefully they get musical chairs, right? Now there's some of us where we're used to more talking about people than to people. And I just sense God saying, that's not love. Some of us, we treat community like it's something to consume. Did you enjoy church today? Well, Michael preached a bit long, so not really. Friends, it's actually not about whether the sermon or worship is good enough. We rock up not to consume, but because there is someone here that needs you to rock up and look them in the eye and say this, hey, you're a son and you're a daughter of God right now. I've come to remind you of it. You thought Michael was boring? That's fine. I'm going to have your attention in the next 30 seconds and know you are loved and called as you go into the world. That's why I don't understand why people make church optional because it's not about you. We lay down our lives for others that people rock up and go, oh my gosh, I wish I could be a part of this. And we get to look at them and we get to say two, two words, two gospel-laced words, two words that should impact them as it impacted us. We look them in the eye and we say, welcome home. You have a seat at our table. Hey, you should sit where Michael sits just so he knows what it's like to someone else to sit where he usually sits. And let's see how well he reacts. Let's do it, friends. Why? Why? Because it starts here. I've received an identity where I'm a son or a daughter of God and I don't deserve it. I did nothing to earn it. But boy, I receive this love every day, no matter how bad I am. Even when I've forgotten my identity, Christ comes along. He looks me in the eye by the power of the advocate, the Holy Spirit. He says, hey, this is not who you are. Come back and be a child of God. Why? Why? So we might have a revolutionary group that looks at the war in Ukraine, that looks at the disparity of the political scene in Australia and goes right here, we're going to live in a different way, in a different truth that the world might see a different kingdom. That's why someone who voted on Labor last night should be able to have coffee with someone that voted Liberal and then be okay. Amen? Let's go a bit further. That's why somebody voted for the Palmer Party and someone who voted for the Greens. They should be able to go out of the courtyard and be like, hey, what about that election? Hey, you're a son and daughter of God. Amen? Now that was quieter. Amen? You're already showing me who you voted for. Why? Because this is a revolutionary kingdom, friends, where everyone gets an option to be a son and a daughter of God. No matter who they are, who they voted for, they are called home as you were. Do they know us by our love for one another? And if they don't, 
Don't try harder. Return to the throne. Receive the identity. Don't forget that the world might know a king who's coming and making sons and daughters of orphans again. Would you stand to your feet? You know, friends, I just, oh, just finish on this. I'm, I'm Myers-Briggs. I'm an INTJ. I'm an A-type leader. Loving people is not something I'm good at without Jesus. If you've ever felt loved by me, it's not because you've met me. It's because Christ is doing a work in my heart. But guess what? I want to be a part of a community that challenges me to love better than I did yesterday. Because there are people in this room I know, because I got told, who were invited to church for the first time this morning. And they're asking this question, do I want to belong here? And I've just preached for 40 minutes, so their answer is probably no. But now we've got the courtyard. Now we've got worship. Now we've got the fact the Holy Spirit's stirring amongst us because it's not about what happens here, it's what God's doing here. This is us, friends. We are sons and daughters of God. And we are looking for further sons and daughters to adopt into our family by the power of His Holy Spirit. Just close your eyes and bow your heads with me. I was walking with God last night. I was so stressed about this sermon today. So worried, as I do most Saturday nights. And then just God reprimanded me. He said, Michael, you're about to preach on your identity in Christ and you've forgotten your identity. I love you so much. And just something broke inside me where God's like, I want to do this with you. Don't do it for me, Michael. Do it with me. And I realize that there's a divine invitation for us all today of God saying, I long to be with you. I don't need you, but boy, I want you. For those who are pressured, for those who are weighed down, for those who are hurting and confused, God comes along and says, cast your burdens upon me. Let me teach you what it is to be a daughter and a son of the king. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord today or as your king or as your brother and friend, and you want to, you know that you've not been living the way God's called you to live, and you feel condemned, God's come to bring conviction and say, this is not how you were created to be. Come home. Be born again. If you want to return and know your place at the table of the family of God, would you just open your hands up in front of you right now? And Jesus, I believe that across this room, there are people right now opening their hands and just believing that you're calling them home. I pray for a fresh revelation of your identity right now in the name of Jesus. If that's you, I'm just going to say these words. You can say them out louder in your heart. But this is just the way we just pray and respond. Some of you pray this prayer a hundred times. I have. Some of you, it's your first time. It's not a magical prayer. It's a spiritual one. It's a way we just learn to talk to God. Say these words with me if you want. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for the darkness in my heart. I need a new identity. A new family. I want to come home. Forgive me of my sins. Teach me to follow you. As my Lord, my Savior, and my Father and my King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Just across this room, wherever you're Christian or not Christian, if you're willing and you believe that Jesus called you to be a son or a daughter of God, would you just open your hands in front of you? Every Christian right now in this room who calls themselves a son or daughter of God, will you open your hands in front of you? Because you know what? Only the Holy Spirit can bring what I, what I cannot. There's a throne room. I sense that there have been some people who have been scared to be real and honest with God right now. The book of Hebrews says that you can boldly approach the throne of grace for help in your time of need. I sense God saying, run to the throne. The King, the Creator, the Sovereign Lord of all, and your Father is calling you home. I just want you to stay in that moment, just the hands outstretched, and uh, we're going to sing a song. It's just called No Longer Slaves. It starts talking about you unraveled me with a melody. As this melody plays over you, may the truth that we are no longer slaves to fear, but we are children of God because of Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross and the empty tomb. Friends, may we sing the way that revelation deserves to be celebrated. Run to the throne. Run to the Father. He's calling you home. Let's worship together.